0: It's so nice to see so many people here this morning. I think about sometimes we, we read in the newspapers all the sort of terrible and disheartening things that are happening in the world. And just once I'd like to look at the front page and see a small thing that says, you know, 50 people met for quiet meditation in Redwood City. Wouldn't that be a nice change? Well, I was at a small gathering of friends last night and uh, needed to leave early because I knew I would be getting up for this morning. And uh, the host, when I went to say goodnight and I explained why I had to leave, he said, so what are you going to talk about? And I thought about it for a few moments. I said, well, I I guess the main thing is I want to talk about taking responsibility for your own life. And, And what would that mean? Because it's... It's not just about, you know, making sure your children go to a good school or paying the mortgage or arriving on time at work. It really has more to do, um, in a, from a Buddhist point of view, uh, with the way that Zen Master Dogen Zenji spoke about it, of actualizing the fundamental point. And what is this fundamental point? Well, it is our Buddha nature that this is something that is our birthright, that is the birthright of all sentient beings. But you'll notice he says to actualize it, because while we may have it, we're not always actually manifesting it. But then I also realized that what I want to talk about today has a lot to do with um, the nature of friendship, spiritual friendship. Uh, In Buddhism, we often talk about the bodhisattva way. The bodhisattva is the one who puts off nirvana in order to continue to be here in the world saving all beings. So actually today, I would like to dedicate this talk to someone in this room who has been a bodhisattva for me for almost 20 years. This person I met accidentally at Tassahara all those years ago. And for almost 20 years, hundreds of Friday mornings, we have met to sit meditation. And that may seem like a small thing, but it's not. 20 years of having someone be there for you rain, shine, sleet, hail, fog. <laughs> this is a wonderful thing. So, thank you, Kathy. Oh, okay, is that better? Or is it maybe not on? Okay, well, I'll just try to speak a little louder too. (laughs) So I wanted to start with a story. This is uh, about a monk named Ken, and no, this is not Barbie's counterpart. <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but I believe this refers to one of the, uh, the patriarchs in the lineage down from Buddha, Ken Junsa. So long ago in China, there was a monk named Ken. And during his training years, he practiced in the monastery of Tahui, But despite his prodigious efforts, he had not attained enlightenment. One day, Ken's master ordered him to carry a letter to the far off land of Changsha. Now, this journey round trip could easily take a half a year. The monk Ken thought, I don't have forever to be staying in this hall practicing. Who's got time to be running off to Changsha with a letter? Well, he consulted one of his seniors, a monk named Genjoza about this. Again, Joseph began to laugh when he heard what was troubling Ken. Oh no, even while traveling, you can still practice. In fact, I'll come with you. And so before long, the two monks set off on this journey. And one day while the two were traveling, the younger monk, Ken, suddenly just burst into tears. He was so frustrated. I have been practicing for so many years and I still haven't been able to understand the fundamental point. Now, here I am running around the country on this trip and there is no way I'm going to understand. And he just sobbed. And when he heard this, Genjoza, thrusting all the strength that he had into his words, put himself at the junior monk's disposal. He said, I will take care of anything that I can for you on this trip, but there are just five things that I cannot do in your place. I can't wear clothes for you. I can't eat for you. I can't shit for you. I can't piss for you. And I can't carry your body around and live your life for you. And it is said that upon hearing these words, the monk Ken suddenly awakened from his deluded dream and attained a great enlightenment. The first time I read this story, I thought, oh, There it is again. This keeps coming up. This nothing special that Suzuki Roshi was always talking about. That we're always sort of separating our practice from our everyday life. And that this is special and this is mundane and they have very little to do with each other. And this is what we can see that the monk Ken is doing. He's separated out what he thinks he's doing in the monastery, practicing, lots of hours of meditation and chanting and bowing and whatever it is he's doing. But then his teacher sends him out into the mundane world to do something like carry a letter to someone. Couldn't we get some peon to do that? Mm -hmm. So he has separated his daily activity From this thing he thinks in his head is called enlightenment. Now, here's one description of enlightenment. A state of mind in which one makes absolutely no projections of favorability or adversity. In other words, like, dislike, desire, aversion. And in which there is no notion Of escape. Interesting little addition there. Mm -hmm. And further, in which one wholly melts within each moment of occurrence. Now, Ken's teacher sends him on this mundane journey. I don't think he did that by accident. I think that probably his teacher could see that this poor monk was stuck. That day after day he'd come in and take his posture and and be all pious. and, And he wasn't getting to him. He really was not getting that everything you do is sacred. That every moment of your existence is special. And if every moment of your existence is special, then there's no such thing as special, right? It's just it. Somehow, like so many of us, he'd gotten involved in the form, in the taking this posture, and forgotten that this posture is actually something we carry with us every moment of the 24-hour day. So I think that on purpose, he sends him off to do this thing that anybody could have done. Anybody could have taken that letter to Changsha. But he's got to get him out of the monastery. He's got to get him out of his normal, habitual mind. What is getting in our way, always, of this enlightened state of mind, which is no more nor less than what we already are, is the three poisons. You already know about these. I'll just name them quickly. There's desire, sometimes translated as greed. And this is basically, I want what I want when I want it. And then there's aversion, sometimes translated as hatred. And when we hear that word, we kind of go, ooh, aversion's a little easier to, to take in. Because that's, I don't want when I don't want it. But even so, sometimes we'll say, oh, I hate that program. We'll actually use that word. So hatred's in there. And and then there's the really difficult one to understand, and that's the third one. It's sometimes translated as delusion or ignorance. Ignorance is somehow a little easier to take in because it it feels better to me that I could be ignorant of something than that I could actually be fooling myself, which is what delusion is. But the fact is we fool ourselves all the time. And that's what makes it so hard. I may be able to see my greed. Oh, yeah, there I go wanting that thing again. And I may be able to see my aversion. Oh, yeah, I really don't like that person. But how do you see delusion? You know, if you're in a deluded state, how do you know it? It's hard. It's, you know, very circular. So practice meditation practice is actually about how to see clearly these three poisons and it is particularly useful in the case of delusion one of the ways that we can work with delusion is by having a teacher or a really good spiritual friend who has our permission to tell us the truth we have a lot of friends all of us have a lot of friends But we haven't actually given them permission to completely tell us the truth all the time. In fact, sometimes if they tell us the truth, we get very angry. We don't want to hear it. You have to have somebody in your life that you trust enough, who cares about you enough, and that you know cares about you, that you are willing to let them hold up this mirror in which you are going to see someone who doesn't look like perfect Buddha nature. So a teacher is one of those people. If we can find someone that seems to be walking their talk, that we feel cares about us little by little, and it takes years, we may finally begin to really trust that person to help us see ourselves. And then we're lucky if we have a sangha like this. There's a wonderful story that uh, my other teacher, Blanche Hartman, who was the abbess at San Francisco Zen Center for many years, tells. Uh, she This was near the beginning of her practice, and she was already in her 40s. She'd already raised a family and had a career when she came to practice. And she'd been hearing about Tassajara Monastery. And finally she went to her teacher, and she said, well, what's the big deal about Tassajara anyway? And he said, well... Everybody there can see who you are. So you might as well see it yourself. And it's true. Somehow we think that who we are, we can hide inside. That nobody sees our insecurities. That so nobody sees our fears. That nobody sees all these aversions and desires. But in fact, it's like we might as well just wear them outside with little labels all over them because pretty much... Everybody who is really looking can see. So finally, we might as well see it ourselves. So a sangha is particularly useful for that because it's really easy to be up on the mountain being a hermit until you have to come down and actually have a conversation with somebody. And the first thing they say is something that offends you, and then that's that. You know, Sangha is where you get to come up against yourself. Well so here's the problem Ken has has this major delusion going on. He has so many ideas about what he's doing in that monastery, what he's doing with his meditation practice, these ideas and expectations he has about this word enlightenment. You know, he's he's made enlightenment something out there and then there's me that he's stuck. He is separated himself from it and therefore he has separated himself from himself. We are enlightenment. This is it. You know, I hate to disappoint you, but (laughs) this is it. This moment, this person, this group, this room, this town, this country, this world, this is it. But there's some work to do. And that is to drop away all the veils and coverings and armor that we put on to keep from seeing it. So, in Zen practice at least, but I think this is true of most of Buddhism, there is this notion of bodhisattva practice. This person who has already understood the fundamental point, but realizes truly then until everybody understands it there's still something missing that the fundamental point of buddha nature is that buddha nature is all connected so when the buddha had his great enlightenment under the bodhi tree he said ah at this moment all beings are enlightened because he saw that if one thing is true it has to all be true for everything and everyone So in my practice, before a lecture, uh, I'm sorry, after a lecture, we recite the four bodhisattva vows. They go like this. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. And the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. And I vow to become it. Well, the first vow alone seems <laughs> a little much. Okay, beings are numberless and I vow to save them, me? How am I going to do that? This is actually what spiritual friendship is all about. It's what each of you is here for. You're not just here for your own little separate self. You may think so when you first arrive. You may think that's why you've come, to find something for yourself, to get something for yourself. But actually, the longer you practice, the more you realize there is no such thing as a separate self. That everything that is you is also everything else. You are the air you breathe, and you breathe out into it. There is no way you can be here in this world in a vacuum. This morning you all had something to eat or drink. Maybe you had a cup of coffee or a bagel or pancakes or something. You are now those pancakes. You are flour. You are water. How long does it take when it's in your mouth and it's in pancake form to go through your digestive system and become cells in your body? where, Where do you make that distinction? So Genjosa, Ken's friend, he is the bodhisattva in this story. He's a senior monk at this monastery. He himself has probably been there for many years and has really understood this fundamental point. And probably because he has been actualizing it, he's the one that Ken goes and says, oh, I'm I'm just distraught because I have to go do this stupid thing. And right away, without hesitation, you'll notice in the story, he says... I'll go with you. I don't think that's an accident either. I think Genjoza's been just waiting for a moment, a time, to be there for his friend Ken to help him. So he offers to accompany him, looking for this opportunity to dispel Ken's delusion once and for all. But the whole time they're walking along, Ken is just stubbornly clinging to his point of view that this is a useless journey, that he's wasting his time. Why is he doing this? He could be back at the monastery doing more meditation, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He starts falling into self-pity, even. Oh, I've spent so many years, I still haven't understood anything. Oh, woe is me. We all do that too. You know, what's the good of this practice? I've been coming here for 10 years or 12 years or 15 years and people are still jerks. (laughs) I'm still a jerk. Okay, oh, I can't believe I said that thing to that person. I mean, God, I've been trying to be practicing this way of kindness and I said that, ah! That's exactly what he's saying, you know, boy. He's giving up on himself, but Genjo's is not going to give up on him. The spiritual friend is the one who, first of all, encourages us by walking the path with us. The person who is the one who makes sure that this place opens in the morning that there are tables set up for the lovely food that you bring, that the bells get rung, that the lecture gets given, that the children's school gets done later on. All of these things. That's the person, or people in this case, who are acting as your spiritual friends. And then there's the person you call on the phone and say, "Ah, oh, I have just had such a bad day. I yelled at my kids. I'm really upset with my husband because he didn't do this thing he said he was going to do. And the person on the other end listens. And maybe once in a while holds up a mirror for you. The spiritual friend is the one who offers to do the hard thing for you. So back in April, I knew that in August I was going to be taking a one-month retreat that I had designed for myself, a secluded, solitary, quiet retreat in my joyful garden. But at the very beginning, I knew I wanted to start it with something significant. So I was going to be doing this five-day sitting retreat at San Francisco Zen Center. And I knew that my teacher, Blanche, and another friend, who is also a wonderful teacher, Tia, were going to lead this. So in April, I went up, and I discussed it with Blanche, and I said, I'm thinking very seriously about doing that five-day retreat that comes at the end of your three-week, what's called an intensive there. It's it's like a short um, practice period uh, in which people are studying and having lectures, and it's it's not the intensity of the retreat until those last five days. And Blanche looked at me, and she said, oh... I was going to help Tia lead that, but at the time of the Sashin, I was actually going to leave and go back east. But but if you're going to come and sit that, I will stay and be there for the Sashin. I was stunned. And you know, yes, this person has been a teacher of mine, but she was like the abbot of Zen Center, offering, instead of going someplace else, She's going to be there at that retreat because I've just told her I'm coming. That is spiritual friendship because at that point I said, then I will be there for sure. And it was a wonderful retreat. And even though we weren't actually sitting near each other, she was across the room from me and every time I sat down at my cushion, I saw her. And she was sitting the whole time just like the rest of us. And all I could think inside was, oh, it is, it is so strength-providing and nurturing to know that she is there and that I can count on her. It makes it possible for me to sit one more period when my back is sore, my mind is running. It makes it possible for me to sit down. The spiritual friend does something else, though, which is in some ways even harder to offer. The spiritual friend is the one who practices patience and tolerance and empathy. These are actually much more difficult things to keep in mind when somebody's being particularly uh, difficult or whiny or... Uh, in general, grumbling about their state of affairs. You want to shake them and say, wake up. Instead, at that point, is when you have to practice patience and you're waiting, you're just waiting for the right moment. I just read a description about empathy. Was It was something written by Margaret Atwood, the author, about someone else's writing. And she's talking about how this person has in her book, is using the example of uh, American novelists. And all of the American novelists are talking really about one thing. And Margaret Atwood's sort of comment about it is that the worst sin is the failure of empathy, which is the lack of imagination that must lead inevitably to the persistent lack of kindness. That's a very interesting description. It's the first time I've actually seen very clearly the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy, you feel sorry for someone. Empathy is different. Empathy requires imagination. It requires tremendous imagination, actually, because we actually cannot get inside someone else's shoes. You know, you talk about walking for a mile in someone else's moccasins, right? The fact is, we never actually do, and because of that, because my imagination is limited, I tend to make assumptions about your lives. I think that I understand what you're going through, and I don't think that you're living up to yourself. well, yeah, she's got, you know, five kids and a job, and, but, you know, she really should be able to show up to meditation. That's not empathy. It's not even quite sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> empathy requires a huge leap of imagination, but also <laughs> it requires always seeing my assumptions. We make them all the time about other people. We, don't even, we make them so often, we don't even realize we've made them. Now, Genjoza, he could have made all kinds of assumptions about Ken. Oh, he's whiny, he's lazy. You know, when's he gonna get off his fluffy duffy and figure out what's going on here? But Genjoza doesn't fall into that. He makes this huge leap of imagination of, ooh, I see. He's right on the edge here. He's on the edge of getting it. I just, I have to turn that Dharma wheel just a little bit for him to understand that the taking of that letter to Changsha is every bit as sacred and important as sitting on his cushion in meditation. That there is actually no difference. So Genjoza is practicing this tolerance and this patience and this empathy to the best of his ability, setting aside his own judgments altogether. And it it actually uses these words. It says, thrusting all the strength that he had into his words, he put himself at the junior monk's disposal. In other words, all the strength of his meditation. This is what we do in preparation for that moment at which we can be either helpful to ourselves or to someone else. This, this meditation we do is grounding us in the true mind, the mind of clarity, compassion, wisdom, empathy. It is the mind, it is so creative, this mind, And when we sit down and allow our mind to settle, tremendous things arise. Things that you you never thought of before because it's not you who's thinking them. There is the one mind and you are connected to it. And so at this moment he presents to Ken, the Buddha way. And he says, I can't do these things for you. I can't wear your clothes for you and I can't shit for you or piss for you or eat for you. And furthermore, and most importantly, I cannot carry your body around and live your life for you. In other words, you must now take responsibility for this fundamental thing that we call body-mind he's actually presenting fundamental Buddhist teachings in those five things. The first four, the clothes, the eating, the shitting, the pissing, these are about bodily functions. Okay, we're born with a body. This is just part of it. Everything's born with a body. Redwood tree has a body. Beetle has a body. Rock has a body. This just happens to be our body. So the body represents the relative world. This is something we can't do much about. The relative world exists. The last one, though, about not living your life for you. This is actually about the mind body. In Japanese, it's Shin. They don't make a separation between those two things. And this is the absolute realm. Both things are true. There is these two truths of life. There is the relative world in which you know we're doing mundane things and then there's the absolute world of things as, as it is, as Suzuki Roshi used to say in his Japanese bad grammar. That is the absolute realm of perfection, that there is just what is. But in the relative world, we immediately have a judgment about it. Right. There's illness. <laughs> I don't like to be sick. Okay. But the fact of illness is just a fact but the I don't like and I know I'm going to be uncomfortable, that's over here. But both things are true. So the living of our life completely, the taking responsibility for it, is actually accepting it. Accepting both parts. There's the absolute and there's the relative. And we accept and go back and forth. We do this dance between the two. The Buddha taught, he said... uh, Within this fathom long body is found all the teachings. Is found suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. Right here. I don't have to go anywhere. I'm sure you figured this out too. You don't have to go out there and have somebody say something mean to you. You can say it right here in your own head. Mm-hmm. Suffering is already here. And The cause of suffering, our greed, our hatred, our delusion, is also already here. And then there is also an end to suffering, and that is also already here. When we finally realize the fundamental point of our Buddha nature, of everything's Buddha nature, of Buddha nature everywhere and everything, then we can see and accept ourselves completely and be at ease, finally, in our own body. So really what Genjo is trying to remind Ken is about the three marks of existence. The first mark of existence is there is suffering. You know, we can't get away from it. The moment we are born, there's already pain in birth. And there's pain in illness and there's pain in old age and there's pain in death. Suffering is here. We know that. So he's saying, all right, own your body and mind. Accept this body and mind. Accept the fact that this is the way it is. This is the first mark. The second mark has to do with impermanence. Everything is impermanent. We already know this. Nothing nothing, is exempt from change. We can see this in ourselves as we are getting older. We see this when we pick a flower and 24 hours later that flower is... So you carry your body around and you allow life to live you. Life is going to manifest through you. You're not living life. Life is living you. And in that experience of life living you, change will occur. So in your zazen, if you're feeling emotionally distressed, let's say, if you just stay with it and accept it, oh, I see, I'm, I'm really sad, or I'm really angry, or whatever it is, and then you come back to your breath. And then the anger arises again, or the sadness, or whatever it is. If you're really paying attention, what you begin to see is it has changed. Just a little bit, maybe. Maybe maybe instead of holding it quite so tightly, there's, there's a little bit of relaxation happening around it if we come back to our breath. But if instead I go off and I start going, oh yeah, that person, she really made me mad, and this is what she did, and boy, this is what I'm gonna say to her the next time I see her. Boy, that fist just gets tighter and tighter. But if we can remember, breathe, we can loosen it just a little bit. So we can change either in that direction or we can change in this direction, and frankly, that one's not very pleasant. The last mark of existence is this one, of no self, of no separation. By no self is meant that, on the one hand, there's there's a Misha, and on the other hand, if I actually try to put my finger on what that Misha is, there isn't anything there that's permanent, that, that I can actually write out and is going to be that way forever from now. We are always. Moving, we are always in a state of flux and actually the enlightenment we're all talking about is nothing but movement (coughs) nothing ever sits still we adjust and we adapt and we move with causes and conditions and if we don't move with causes and conditions that we are going to suffer for sure so he says I can't live your life for you you must finally decide that this is the body-mind you have. That every activity you are involved with is a manifestation of that body-mind. Whether it is sitting in meditation, making a meal, taking a letter for six months down the road, sitting at your computer, taking your child to school, driving in Redwood City, each moment is an opportunity for us to manifest our fundamental nature. Ken finally understands, you know, all these stories, always, oh, the monk had great enlightenment, right? They all end that way. And it sounds like it was just this light bulb went on in their head and that was that. You have to remember, he's probably been practicing for 25 or 30 years. The ground is being prepared and and the seeds in there and finally Genjoza waters it with just the right thing. He finally understands this point, that the carrying of the letter was every bit as important as his sitting practice. That in the carrying of his letter, he could be mindful. He could be joyous. He could be doing a kindness for his teacher he could be having this wonderful trip with his friend, Genjosa. At some point, because of what Genjosa says, this sinks in. And he has an opening. It's funny, we think of it as an opening, but actually it's really more true that we have a dropping away. You know, Dogen actually uses those words, dropping away body and mind. It's taken me years to figure out what he was talking about, but if you think about it, it's really very easy. If inside of everything, there is this pure heart of Buddha, this Buddha nature, this perfect Buddha nature, then it is all the accretions that we have added to it that are the one, the things getting in our way. All Every time we are deluded, well, that's one more layer. Every time we are struck by greed, that's another layer, hatred. So that by the time we get to be adults, we are carrying around pounds and pounds of armor. And we can't see through it either. We don't even know we're in it. Until every now and then, we see something. We understand. A teacher says something, we read something in a book, or a friend shows us something. And then what it's like is, it's like a whole piece of armor drops away. And we see more clearly. And we think, Oh! Oh, that's enlightenment. No, that's, you've, you've just got a better view of who you really are. you already enlightened, it's already here. We just have to see it and then we have to actualize it. So just to make sure you don't think that you can just run off and do letters all the time and not sit. <laughs> I don't think that Ken would have been able to hear what Genjosa had to say if he hadn't had a really grounded practice of being able to self-reflect. Because no matter how well-meaning a friend or a teacher or your sangha is, they can be, show, you know, they can be holding up that mirror as much as they want, but you are the one that has to be willing to see. And at least in my experience, the only thing that has ever worked for me in that kind of seeing is this. So I encourage you to continue this wonderful practice. And, and thank you so much for having me here today.